Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. A few decades ago, during the fallout from the Watergate scandal, in uh, Washington, D.C., Republican Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, well, he, he was the source of it, but about that time, the Associated Press tracked down a man living in Fontana, California, who had the same name, except it was Richard M. Nixon, and the M stood for Mark. When a reporter asked Mr. Richard Mark Nixon what it was like having the same name as someone who had gotten into the office of president, uh, who, by the way, Mark, Richard Mark Nixon was unrelated and a Democrat. Uh, he said, people are always saying things to me like, well, hello, Mr. President, how are things at the White House today? And then he said, I, I try to go along with it, but it gets old after a while. And, and then he gave another example of the teasing that he receives when he, say, for example, goes to the store and tries to charge something. Uh, the clerk might say, uh, sorry, Mr. President, your credit is no good here. Uh, and then he gave another example of, you know, uh, sadly, something that happened to him while he was driving. Um, he said, uh, I got pulled over by a policeman one night, and I gave him my name as requested. What is your name? Uh, well, Richard Nixon. And the police officer snapped and said, okay, you smart punk, get out of the car and throw your hands on the hood. After being frisked and then taking his license and registration and calling into uh, headquarters to run his background check, uh, the police officer found that Richard Mark Nixon was telling the truth. That was his real name, and so the police officer laughed it off. Police officers, as you know, have to ask for a license and registration because there are people out there pretending to be someone that they are not and driving cars that are not their own. Mistaken identity and identity theft is not just a 21st century problem. It existed in the early church in the first century because there were people pretending to be Christians that were not, and there were others that claimed they belonged to the Lord when they did not. And so John wanted to address this. We're continuing our series in 1 John called Authentic Walk. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 3 and pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder. If you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We want you to have a copy with you so you can follow along with us. Let me give you some background on 1 John just to refresh your memory because last week we had a guest speaker here. And uh, for those of you that are here for the first time today, I'm glad you're visiting. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, let me bring you up to speed on what we've been learning uh, in 1 John uh, John was the last living apostle that ministered with Jesus. Uh, it's believed that he wrote 1 John uh, and 2nd and 3rd John in the sunset of his life between 90 and 95 AD while he was ministering around Ephesus. 
Knowing this date is important because it means that John had spent 50 years since the passing of the Lord, since or the resurrection of the Lord, uh, John had spent 50 years watching his best friends literally die for the gospel message. In fact, um, here's a quick rundown of what happened to uh, the early apostles just to give you some understanding and to help you put yourself in John's shoes. Uh, James, his old, John's older brother, was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. And that's described in Acts chapter 12. Philip, another apostle, was scourged, imprisoned, and crucified in 54 AD. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia in 60 AD. James, Jesus' half-brother, was clubbed to death in 66 AD, again because of his commitment to preaching the gospel. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was dragged to pieces in Alexandria. And what was common back then, uh, one of the many forms of torture was to tie uh, the feet uh, and hands of a professing Christian to two horses. Uh, feet tied to one horse, hands to the other, and they would say, renounce your faith or else we say giddy up. And martyrs like Mark and others said, well, go ahead and say it because I will not renounce him. Peter was crucified upside down by the emperor Nero, and that was at Peter's request because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. John even outlived the apostle Paul. Paul was beheaded in 66 AD. And of course, we know Paul came onto the scene later and got saved later in Acts, uh, and so he was later into the game than John was. But John outlived him. Jude, another early apostle, was crucified in 72 AD. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. Thomas was tortured, speared, and thrown into a fiery oven. Luke, who wrote Luke in Acts and was Paul's companion, was uh, believed to have been hung from an olive tree in 93 AD. And then John, here's what John had experienced up till he's writing 1 John. He was sent to Rome, cast into a large vessel filled with boiling oil that did not harm him. He was then released, banished to the island of Patmos, which is a Mediterranean island, he returned to, uh, and by the way, Patmos is where he wrote the book of Revelation. Then he was later released from Patmos, returned to Ephesus, and died around 98 AD. He was the only apostle that escaped a violent death. So you see, for John, the gospel wasn't something to be taken lightly, because taking it seriously had cost him greatly. I dare you to put yourself in John's shoes. Imagine how you'd feel if a loved one of yours died in service for our country, and then you heard some Yahoo taking for granted the freedom that your loved one died to protect. I bet you'd be all up in his grill, as they say. 
You'd be furious. I think that's how John felt in parts of 1 John. You see, because John saw his loved ones, his friends, die for the sake of the gospel, and so thus he becomes a little prophetic when he sees some Christians casually going about their faith very casually. And he seems to say throughout 1 John, hey, this is serious stuff here. People died for this. Don't take it for granted. But at the same time, he's also pastoral in trying to encourage those that are a little discouraged in their faith. He wants to encourage those that need encouragement, and he wants to give a loving kick in the pants to those, to those that need a kick in the pants. Because there's a lot at stake with this gospel that we say we believe. And so, with that, let's look at our key verse for this series that I'm asking you to memorize with me. It's uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. You can look at it on your outline or on the screen behind me. Let's say it out loud together. Whoever says, I know him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Throughout this series, John, this venerable ministry veteran, is telling us a simple truth in several different ways. He keeps coming back to it, and that is, real Christians really walk with Christ. They don't play games with Jesus. They don't pretend to be a follower of Jesus. They walk with him. This crusty old apostle has been saying with a, with a tell-it-like-it-is uh, boldness, if you claim to know Jesus... Then follow him, love like him, sacrifice for him, and if necessary, suffer for him. In other words, walk worthy of the name you claim or change your name. Thus, our big idea for today is this, uh, the sermon in one sentence that I hope you'll walk away with, and that's uh, real Christ followers can prove their identity with their walk. Real Christ followers can prove their identity with their walk. John answers at least two questions in the text we're going to look at today. The first being, how can I tell if someone has been born again? And the other question he answers is, how can I tell if I've been saved, if I've been born again? How can I tell if I have eternal life through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And so John is going to answer those two questions, both kind of on two sides of the coin. How do you discern if somebody else is saved? How do you discern if you've been saved? Especially if you think you were and then you're not sure because you're maybe struggling in your faith. In John, 1 John chapter 3, he provides evidence to look for when trying to discern whether someone has been redeemed. There's at least two reasons for this, and these are in your outline. I want to encourage you to write them down. Uh, two reasons you need to know the proofs of salvation. Uh, the first is so you can have the assurance of salvation. You see, most Christians doubt their salvation at some point in their life. It's normal to have a brief season where you're wondering, you know, did I mean what I prayed? Did I, 
Was my commitment legit? Uh, um, man, I'm really struggling here. I think this is in large part because the evil one has been causing people to doubt God since the Garden of Eden. And if the evil one can get you and I to doubt that we're saved, it paralyzes our witness and undermines our confidence in the Lord. But there's another reason why John rattles off several proofs of salvation in his letter. Uh, this isn't the first time. It comes up in chapter 2. It's coming up here in chapter 3. It's going to come up in chapter 4 where he's giving proofs. Here's how you know somebody's saved. Well, here's the second reason, and that is so you can avoid the assumption of salvation. Not for yourself, per se, but assuming others are saved when they're not. I believe the most devious trick the evil one plays on Christians is, is by getting them to assume someone is saved when they actually are not. Because maybe they go to church, or they vote Republican, or they, they're for gun rights, or they are pro-life, or they uh, pray at Thanksgiving, or have a Bible on their living room table. There's all sorts of new metrics that Americans have come up with none of which are in Scripture. The dictionary defines assume as to uh, believe something without proof. Thus, making false assumptions about someone's spiritual condition has serious implications. Here's just a couple that I thought of. You see, if you falsely assume that somebody is saved when they're not, um, you could end up marrying somebody that's not a believer or dating somebody that's not a believer. The, scripture, the scriptures talk about that being a bad choice. Um, if you assume that uh, somebody is a believer when they're not, you could go into a business partnership with them and they're operating on worldly standards when you're thinking biblically about how to run business and pleasing God and they're like just out to make a dollar and willing to compromise integrity and all sorts of things. Uh, if, you, if you assume someone's saved and they haven't demonstrated the proofs of salvation, it could wreak havoc in your family, for example. If you believe that your child is born again because, well, they're a reasonably good kid, they got good grades in school, um, they stayed out of trouble, and they went to church without complaining. I mean, they didn't argue with us about going to church, so they've, they've got to be a Christian, right? And thus, by that assumption, you wouldn't preach the gospel or pray for your child's salvation. Such assumptions are also a form of heresy because it changes the gospel that Jesus preached. J.C. Ryle warned his generation of this danger in, John, excuse me, in the 19th century when he wrote this, uh, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy but not just, a God who is all love, but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody, but a hell for no one, a God who will make no distinction between good and bad in eternity. So John wants us to have the assurance of salvation if we have genuinely received Christ as our Savior, and he wants us to avoid the assumption of salvation for those that don't really know Jesus yet. Now, in chapter 3, verses 19 to 24, there are three more proofs of salvation. They are not the only proofs. He listed obedience to Christ as 
one of the others in chapter 2, and if you missed that message, you can check it out uh, online. It's on our website and our podcast called Walking in Obedience. Uh, he also lists love as another proof in chapter 4, which we'll look at uh, in a couple of weeks. And so without further ado, let's dive into today's text and get God's heart on this topic of proof of identity. Uh, Follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 19 to 21. John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart, excuse me, for whenever our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Here's the first thing that John is telling us, and number one on your outline, and that is that authentic Christians have a confidence before God. Authentic Christians have a confidence before God. John says in verse 19, by this we No. You've heard me mention before in this series that the word know, K-N-O-W, as in knowledge, uh, is one of the two most repeated terms that John uses in this letter. Love was the other one. Know is used 20 to 30 times, depending on which Bible translation you look at. It's used to refer to either the knowledge of the gospel, the head knowledge of the gospel, acquiring that, or... It's used to describe the experience of knowing Christ. So it's intellect and experience, depending on the context in which the word is used. Now, if you would keep your finger in chapter 3 and just look back with me at chapter 2 in your Bible, I want to show you a few other places where John uses the word no. Uh, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, uh, And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Then look at verse 5 of chapter 2. By this we know that we are in him. And then chapter 3, verse 24, which we'll look at in a few minutes, he says, and by this we know that he abides in us. And then chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know... We abide in him and he in us. So you've heard me say before that when there's repetition, like we see here in God's word, we should always ask, what's it there for? Why is the author repeating this? And in this context, John, why does he keep saying, we know? Well, I thought you'd never ask. Because the apostle wants to assure those that need assurance of salvation And he wants to stop others from assuming some are saved that are not. So he's saying, we know this, and we know this. And those truths of what we know about the gospel prove those are saved and prove some are not. In verse 21, he says, we have a confidence before God because of what we know. Now, I think he's giving us, he's saying you can have confidence in two situations. Two situations. So here's A and B on your outline. The first is, John wants us to have confidence when we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat. 
This is talked about in Matthew 25, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5. It's something you need to be aware of if you are a believer. In the macro context of the entire New Testament, John is referencing the judgment seat where our profession of faith will be authenticated by the Lord when we stand before him someday. The Lord will give eternal rewards out to those that have served him well with their time, talent, and treasure that know him, and those who don't know him, well, Jesus gave us a sneak preview in Matthew chapter 7. He will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Just like a teacher coming to inspect the work of his students or a company owner coming to inspect the work of his employees, Jesus is going to inspect what his followers have done with their time, talent, and treasures, with the life that he gave them. And he will give rewards accordingly. Some will be rewarded more than others. And the scriptures tell us some are going to have regrets because they got into heaven just as though escaping through the flames. 1 Corinthians 3 says that. They, they got eternal life, but they got nothing else after that. No rewards because they lived selfishly in the time that they had on earth. Here's the second instance where John wants us to have confidence, not only at the judgment seat, but also when we stand before the Lord in prayer. In the micro context here of this passage, John brings up prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says that we can have such confidence. The author of Hebrews says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John wants us to have confidence in prayer and see tangible answers to prayer. But as we will see in the next verse, the Lord's not a vending machine where we can just put in a little money and push the right buttons and get whatever we ask from him. So what do we do? How do we apply what we've read here in verses 19 to 21? We're called to be doers of the word. And Jesus said during his ministry, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I tell you to do? So let me give you a practical application. I think verses 19 to 21 call us again to do regular heart checkups to do regular heart checkups where we examine our heart. Paul challenged the Corinthians to do this in 2 Corinthians 13.5, where he wrote, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We should examine our hearts because the Lord wants real Christ followers to have confidence that they will be with him in eternity. And he wants real Christ followers to have a confidence that they will be rewarded when they get there. But this isn't to say we won't have seasons of doubt, too. When we wonder if we are saved. and I've had those, and I've had to examine my own heart from time to time and, and kind of run through the grid of Scripture and look back on my life and, did I really mean what I said? And uh, is this, if I, have I honored the Lord? And so on and so forth, and uh, it's, a, it's a good, healthy thing to do periodically. 
And if you have, run through the grid of Scripture and check the boxes of, yes, I know I repented of my sin, and I know by faith I trusted in Christ alone for my salvation, and by his grace I'm doing my best to walk with him, then you press on by faith and you push through that season of doubt. As you heard me mention in my psalm series last fall, even David, a man after God's own heart, struggled with doubt. And if you haven't heard that series, I'd encourage you to check it out online. David struggled with sometimes, where is God? What are you doing? And why have you forsaken me? And he got through it as well. Real Christ followers can prove their identity with their walk. Let's look back at the text, verses 22 to 23 now. John continues and he says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Here's number two in your outline, the second truth that John is telling us, and that is that authentic Christians have real answers to prayer. So one of the other proofs of salvation is answers to prayer. Not like prayers that sometimes you hear people say, please, Lord, help my team win so I can have a flawless NCAA bracket. Not, or not, not the prayers like, dear Lord, help me get a parking spot up near the entrance of the store so I don't have to walk through the rain. No, nothing like that. Instead, authentic Christians have real answers to prayer. Like, we were on the ropes financially, but God came through with provision out of nowhere. And if God hadn't come through, we would have been on our face. Or, or that relationship I had with that person was so far gone that if God hadn't intervened, it would have been gone forever. Or, or my friend came to faith in Jesus Christ and they were running from God for years, but the Lord got a hold of him, turned him around, and changed their life. You know you have legitimate answers to prayer when, when what normally happens is replaced with something abnormal. Or when the current course of things is reversed to create a new outcome. Or when you can simply say, the only explanation for what just happened is the Lord. So John says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, this is an incredible promise from the Lord, and he's reiterating something that Jesus himself had said in John 14 and 15. But this verse isn't saying we can just go, Lord, I want an ice cream cone right now, and bam, you know, there's a triple scoop right there. Gluten-free cone, of course. It's not saying that our prayers are governed by God's sovereign will. And even John said this later in chapter 5, verse 14, which we'll get to eventually in this series. What this means is that when we ask the Lord for something in prayer, he will grant it to us if it is in line with his plan for our lives and his plan for the rest of the world too. Still, there are certain conditions that must be met. And John lists these two conditions. Uh, a is obedience to his commands. In verse 22, he says, You see, because we keep his commands, we can ask whatever we want from him. 
We need to remember this because even sin committed by a born-again believer is serious to the Lord. It's offensive to him. And although a believer's relationship with God is not severed when he sins, it does create a distance between God and the believer that can lead to silence from heaven. Even the Lord told his people this in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. You can jot that down if you want and look it up later. But Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, during a season of rebellion, uh, the people of uh, Israel were going, Lord, how come you're not answering our prayers? What's going on? And the Lord says to them, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So in other words, the Lord's saying, hey, I can hear you, but I'm not going to answer you until you deal with your sin. Just as Christian parents know not to reward their child's disobedience, the Heavenly Father won't answer prayer if there is obvious unrepentant sin in our hearts. Now, he's not looking for perfection, and I need to fence that because I know some of you hear what I just said, and you're going, oh, great, I'll never be good enough to get an answer to prayer. No, 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 it's not about that. He's not looking for, for, for perfection from you. He just wants you to take him seriously. So if you know you've done something or not done something that is sinful, own it quickly and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to keep a relationship with you that is in good standing at all times. Obedience doesn't guarantee us answers to prayer, but it does make us eligible candidates to see God come through with the answers that we seek. So, obedience to his commands, John says, is one prerequisite. Here's the other, and that's a relationship with the Son. In verse 23, John says, we believe in his name, the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. To believe in his name is much more than just being familiar, though, with the gospel story or saying the sinner's prayer. When the New Testament talks about believing in the name of Jesus, it means to repent of your sin, to believe he died on the cross, was resurrected three days later, to receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation that he offers, and then to follow him the rest of your life. And those that have made the individual decision to do that get access to the Heavenly Father. Similar to how uh, most of you, I'm assuming, would not give your car keys to another child that you don't know um, that asks you, hey, can I borrow your car? Who are you? I don't have a relationship with you. In a similar sense, the Lord is not going to answer prayers for people that are not his children. So how do we apply this? Here's our second application. I think this is a reminder to respond to God's word so he will respond to us. So, so in other words, to be more clear, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ yet, I want to urge you to make him Lord of your life today so you can have access to him in prayer. And if you do know Jesus personally, but have unrepentant sin in your life, I want to urge you to make things right with the Lord today so you can get those benefits back again. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's well and good, Pastor, but I have done all these things that you're talking about, and God still isn't answering my prayers. So what else can I do? Well, I, I've been through seasons like that, and let me just agree with you that it's very difficult. When you've, you've checked all the boxes, you've looked through the grid of Scripture, and it feels like you're doing all the right things, and, and yet, similar to what David said in Psalm 13 and Psalm 22, where are you, Lord? What's going on? What's taking so long? I've been there. I've had a few seasons like that. The following quote from C.S. Lewis has encouraged me many times uh, when heaven seemed silent after I'd checked all my boxes, so I thought I'd share this with you. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, experienced the same thing, and that's why he was able to write this. He says, The father can be well pleased in that son or daughter only who adheres to the father when apparently forsaken. The fullest grace can be received by those only who continue to obey during the dryness in which all grace seems to be withheld. So you keep walking. As you heard me say a few weeks ago, you get on the treadmill, and he will help carry you along, and you walk by faith, and know that you'll get through the dry spell, and you'll come through it, and you'll see him move again. Real Christ followers can prove their identity with their walk. Let's look at the last couple of verses as we wrap things up here. Finally, in verse 24, John says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Here's the third point on your outline. And that is that authentic Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Authentic Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit. John is referring to what the apostle told us in chapter 2, that, that obedience to Christ is one litmus test of salvation. But then he adds to this list of evidence by answering the question, well, how else do you know if somebody has the Lord as their Savior. And he says, they have the Spirit. Now, this is a reference to what the New Testament calls the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, a, a new believer receives the Holy Spirit when they surrender their life to Christ. This is talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to jot that down and look it up later, it's Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, where Paul says the Spirit is given as a deposit guaranteeing the redemption of the believer at a further date. It's the provision from the Lord that allows him to be simultaneously with you and with me. So I can be at my house meeting with the Lord because of the Spirit in me, and you can be at your house having devotions meeting with the Lord. It's the Spirit indwelling that makes that possible. The Holy Spirit was promised to the disciples in John 14 and John 16 as proof of salvation. Paul even wrote uh, in Romans 8 9, 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. So how do you know if the Holy Spirit is in them? Well, here's a few indicators from the New Testament. So this is A, B, C, and D. First of all, uh, A, the old life dies so a new life may live. That's Galatians 2.20 that talks about that. Paul explained in Galatians 2.20 that I have, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in order to be saved from our sins, the old us has to die so a new Carrie or a new John or Mike can live. This is so the Spirit can come in and take up residence in our hearts. People that have experienced this can give tangible, specific examples of what their old life was like before Christ and what their new life was like after Christ. There is a clear distinction. They didn't just become a better voter or change parties of, of what, you know, Democrat to Republican. They didn't just, uh, you know, uh, change their preferences of what kind of music they listened to. There are specific sins that they can say, before Christ, I did this, this, and this. After Christ, I was set free from that. I no longer wanted that. I no longer craved it. And I'm chasing him. That is the work of the Spirit. The old life dies so a new life may live. Another sign that the Spirit has taken up residence in someone's heart is, uh, letter B, there's a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. There's a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. In John 16, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict us about sin and righteousness. The Spirit does not speak on his own authority, according to Jesus, but only what the Father wants. And we know that the Father hates sin and he loves holiness because of what he was willing to do to his Son on the cross as a result of sin. If you ever watch The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film from 2004, you get a nice picture in high definition of how the Lord felt about sin. It's gruesome and graphic on purpose. We'll talk more about that on Good Friday, uh, in our Good Friday service, but it shows just how ugly our sin is to the Lord, and it still is. And so he hates it. Thus, if someone professes faith in Christ and doesn't feel conviction when they sin, and they have no desire to become like Christ, then John says they don't know him. Because if the Spirit's in them, the Spirit would move them to want to know Christ and please him with all that they have. And by the way, just in case you're thinking, man, I'm going to let her be, check that off, because I hate other people's sin. Be careful. See, because it should be your own sin that you hate first. Here's the third evidence of the indwelling spirit. Uh, let her see there's a hunger for the scriptures. A hunger for the scriptures. Someone who's been born again craves to learn God's word so that they can grow closer to him. This is why there are food metaphors in the scriptures for the scriptures. You've heard them before, milk, solid food, meat, and bread. The born-again believer not only has a craving to learn the scriptures, 
but they have a, a spirit-given ability to understand them at a basic level. They, 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 there's a switch that goes off. And I remember when this happened for me when I was in college and I, I gave my life to Christ, all of a sudden I started to read the Bible and I couldn't understand it. It seemed like every Sunday when I went to church, the pastor was preaching on something that I had just read in my devotions. And, and I was like, oh man, that's what that means? Oh, I was just reading that yesterday. That is so amazing. It was just exciting to go to church and to learn and see like, like blinders had dropped off my eyes because the Spirit had moved into my heart and taken up residence. In John 14 and 16, Jesus said the Spirit would, would uh, guide believers in the truth, which is a reference to God's Word. But sadly, there are some that have believed the lie these days that you can profess Christ, but you don't need the Bible. You don't need to read it. You don't need to apply it. You can, you can just go to heaven, but still live like you want to live. Well, that's a tragic lie. J.C. Ryle astutely addressed this problem uh, when he wrote this during his ministry. He says, tell me what the Bible is to a man or a woman, and I will generally tell you what he or she is. This is the spiritual pulse if we would know the state of the heart. I have no notion of the spirit indwelling in a man or woman and not giving clear evidence of his presence. And I believe it to be a single evidence of the spirit's presence when the word is really precious to a man or woman's soul. So is God's word precious to you? And if it's not you might have a bigger problem you need to address. I would encourage you to receive Christ and, so that you can get the indwelling spirit, or if you're certain you've done that, then I would urge you to say, Lord, please give me a passion and a hunger for your word. Because what Ryle says and John says and Jesus says is that if the spirit is living in you, which is only possible through repentance of faith in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit would want you to be in the Word and learn the Word and apply it to your life. Here's letter D, another evidence of the Spirit's indwelling, and that is increasing fruits of the Spirit. You're familiar with these, I'm sure, from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Paul had to list these out because the Galatians were guilty of committing legalism. They were preaching that uh, people had to be circumcised and have Jesus in order to be saved. And so Paul's letter to the Galatians is a, a passionate rebuttal of that heresy. And so he instead gives uh, the fruits of the Spirit. The reason he writes them out is to give proof of, here's how you know whether somebody's saved. It's not whether they've been cut on a certain part of their body. And so he rattles off uh, uh, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These qualities are more and more increasingly evident in the person that's been born again because the Spirit is working in them and the Spirit manifests these fruits. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they always have them every day. It just means that if you look at their life over time, you can say, yes, 
They were joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and had self-control. It doesn't mean they always perfectly had all those things. We're human, and we have a sin nature, and we struggle. And so, when the Spirit indwells somebody, instead of loving themselves, they now love Christ. And instead of having a heart that's hardened by sin, they have a new heart that's softened by the Savior. So how do we apply this final point here? If true believers have the indwelling Spirit, what do we do with this? Well, I think it's a reminder that we need to assess people through the lens of Scripture, We need to assess people through the lens of Scripture. Just as doctors diagnose the physical condition of patients by looking for symptoms, believers need to discern the spiritual condition of others by looking for signs of the Holy Spirit. It's not, the signs are not, it's not tongues or some dramatic spiritual gift, by the way, as some denominations have tried to teach. It's it's the things that I've mentioned in letters A, B, C, and D. So just as assessing symptoms helps doctors treat patients, looking at others through the lens of Scripture tells us how we should treat them, how we should pray for them, how we should talk to them. For example, the Scriptures give believers different directions on how they should talk to one another versus how they should talk to an unbeliever. So we need to assess people through the lens of Scripture. Not what we want them to be, not what we hope them to be, but what God's Word would say they are. Not wishing, I, 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 I think my child's saved. Why? Because they're my child, and they grew up in my home, and they went to church, and they served in ministry, and so on and so forth. That means nothing if they don't manifest the fruits of repentance and show any evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. No matter how bad I want them to be saved. So, authentic Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the next time you get pulled over for being a Christ follower, make sure you can prove who you really are. Because real Christ followers can prove their identity by their walk. What proof do you have? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, I just want to pray, first of all, for those who might be here today or listening online that are familiar with the gospel. They know that Jesus was born at Christmas and died on Easter and was resurrected. They've heard the story, but the truth of the story hasn't made that journey from their head to their heart. It hasn't hasn't sunk in and changed them. Father, please, would you reveal Christ to them? Would you show them that Jesus is still alive and working today? Would you help them by your spirit and by your grace to take that step of faith and repentance? where they surrender their life to you, they stop trying to earn their salvation, and they receive the gift of eternal life. 
Father, for those that have made that decision, but maybe are struggling because they've been praying and praying and praying for a long time, maybe for a spouse or for healing or for a job or financial relief. Lord, would you first of all show them if there's anything they might be doing that's hindering their prayers? And if not, Lord, please, would you, would you intervene? Would you, would you come through and show them and remind them in tangible ways that you love them, that you're working for their good, that you're with them? Lord, for those here today that maybe have family members, loved ones that are not saved yet, would you make that clear and evident and give us opportunities to share the gospel with our loved ones so that they can have a real, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ that is life-changing, that is certain that will guarantee their place in eternity. Father, would you help us to be a church that wins souls for you here in this community? We need your help because we know that evangelism and bringing others to faith in Christ, it is a supernatural work. We can't make it happen on our own. All we can do is step out in faith. So Lord, we ask that you would do what only you could do, is that you would grip and change hearts. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.